and welcome to another episode of Media Literate, a podcast about a bunch of grad students trying to figure out the format of their podcast second season. Uh, <laughs> Great intros. Thank you. Strong so far. <laughs> it's I'm, also about media studies. That too. I mean, it's 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 a solid mixture of both. You know, 60-40. 60-40, Yeah. 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 Um, I am Laura Broman. And I am Kim Henry. Yes. And uh, we are super excited for this episode. We are having our friend Sebastian on for a conversation about um, the debate between authorial intent and death of the author and where indigenous cinema fits into that debate. So that's going to be awesome. Um, but first, we, uh, we have to address our continuing imposter syndrome in our new segment that we are calling Cannon Fodder. Did you like that? That was an air horn. No, I got that. That's why I also joined in. Okay, cool. Okay. Oh, yours was also an air horn? Sorry, it was worse, but yeah. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. That was shady. This week, I uh, will be handling cannon fodder again, which, by the way, I came up with that name immediately after we finished recording last time and got so excited. So welcome to the new segment. It's my baby. Um, (laughs) But yeah, so this week I'm going to be your MC of Cannon Fodder because I am an incredibly overwhelmed person right now (laughs) and did not have time to watch Mm -hmm. a uh, cinematically important film. And I have nothing going on in my life, so it worked out pretty well. That I it's a pretty great balance. Um, yeah. <laughs> hopefully we'll get to a 50-50 point where it's like we're both okay. Yeah. But yeah. that's not the case for at least the rest of June. Mm-hmm. So Laura, <laughs> I'm watching did you watch movies today? for two. Um <laughs> I uh <laughs> yes, so I watched um uh Seven Samurai directed by Akira Kurosawa or Kurosawa Akira, uh depending on where you are in the world, but um Pretty important. Definitely heard of it. Definitely feel bad about not watching it. So for those who weren't here last time, uh, this segment is us addressing, as Laura said, our ongoing imposter syndrome by watching movies that we're deeply embarrassed to Mm -hmm. have not seen Mm -hmm. so far as film studies students. Mm -hmm. Um, We're going to cover what we liked about these movies because they're they're important for a reason most Mm -hmm. of the time what you know maybe could be improved what what we we didn't jive with and then finally whether it is something that is either a worth watching or b necessary for you to watch to consider yourself a film scholar Mm -hmm. so laura take it away seven samurai yes so i was uh pretty excited to watch this movie finally because when I was a kid, my favorite movie was A Bug's Life, the Pixar movie. And uh, it is, it's the same movie. It's basically a kid's version of, of Seven Samurai. Um, and I knew that going into it. So that's basically the plot of Seven Samurai is um, a bunch of villagers are being terrorized by some bandits. Kim's face right now. It's true. It You're really is. blowing my yeah. mind. So a bunch of villagers are being terrorized <laughs> by some bandits. Um, and they have until like the end of their next harvest. That's when the bandits are going to come back and steal all their food. So they go into like 
the next city over and they find a bunch of samurai and uh, the samurai come and help them fight the bandits off. And- um, Wait, so how did Kurosawa make that giant bird animatronic oh my god it's amazing when this movie was originally it's made. wild just yeah, the special <laughs> the climax of, of a were... bus life is very intense <laughs> it's um it's funny because they okay so i was wondering whether it was like like okay maybe this is just a similar plot structure whether it's very obviously like a, a kid's version of this and yeah like they both have their climactic battles both take place in the rain there's like very obvious aesthetic influences uh and so i think so that was a lot of fun it's kind of unfortunate uh, i mentioned this when we talked about like the canon in the first episode like you're watching seven samurai one of these greatest films of all time you're like oh this is just like what the ants did in that one children's cartoon um so it's a little a little sad there but it was i mean it's amazing that the worst thing about it is that it's three and a half hours long so it's it's you, you make an evening of it you know you just yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know I might make several evenings of yeah that. yeah um I don't I, it almost feels a bit like um lame to be like not take the contrarian position like we did last time and be like no like actually it's so good but seriously it was really 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 good like okay dude okay so I um I wanted to share another quote from uh this movie too my favorite line because you know it's it's a movie about bunch of men fighting and you'd think there's going to be a whole like just a lot of masculinity and macho-ness and there's definitely some of that but one of my favorite lines is uh, one of the samurais talking to one of the one of the villagers uh who's got a lot of rage in him and and he and the samurai says happens is trying to get him to open up he had talk about it he says if you're upset you shouldn't bottle it up letting out your feelings feelings bit by bit can work wonders it's like oh my god there is so many like wholesome male friendships in the kurosawa is very pro therapy it's like let's have a little bit at a time you just need the right setting don't bottle it up it'll just make the feelings worse it was so that was just lovely i love movies where somebody's like if we're gonna if we're gonna pull this off we gotta get a crew together and that happened here like there's like a whole montage where they're gathering like their ragtag band of misfit samurai to to and it's like you know there's like the Mm -hmm. old wise one there's the young one who's like just dreamed of being a samurai his whole life there's the absolute wild card who's like just a total madman and um they're just they all these disparate personalities coming together and like oh god it's so much fun um okay all right wow have you sold me am i going to watch yes so this i actually do think it's like an important movie to watch because it's i mean kurosawa is probably this is this is a big statement to make but like maybe the most like influential non-hollywood director on on hollywood and like so many i mean Mm -hmm. the western not just the western genre but i mean kids movies as as i I mentioned and Mm -hmm. and star i mean star wars is hugely influenced by kurosawa and the jedi geki genre that's why they're called the jedi Mm -hmm. um you know the person who influenced all these movies deserves to like be understood and known like you should like be able to watch a bug's life and understand the the people like the person that this is why a bug's <laughs> life is, is i'm the only person we should who be able to watch a bug's, a bug's life, life but like i'm a big <laughs> fan of it but a bigger fan after this but um so yeah seven samurai hot take 
very good movie. Highly recommend. Wow. Um, wow. If you want That's to why you come to me illiterate. <laughs> for the, for the yeah. hot takes. Did you know that Akira Kurosawa, pretty good director. Pretty good director. I will say God, one last trash. thing. No, he is not the only Japanese director, right? That's one thing. Like I, we have this, um, one of the things about the canon in general is this kind of proclivity for tokenism and it's like yeah I, I watch mm -hmm. foreign films I've seen I've seen seven samurai um mm -hmm. and so he's not an uncontroversial figure in Japanese cinema I believe so it's you know there are a lot of Japanese directors out there who mm -hmm. are very very Including. important and talented uh well Kenji Mitsuguchi and Yasujiro Ozu are like the other two big guys but it's also important to remember that there are others besides those big three mm -hmm. so you know I've heard that Ozu is one of the um the most Marxist don't, don't. filmmakers <laughs> ever. That Tokyo Story is the most Marxist film I've ever seen. And for people who are confused <laughs> listening to this right now, that is what's called an inside joke. Yes, now, how not. do we address inside jokes and talking in as it's referred to in fourth cinema? This is also a little vocab lesson for you called a segue. Damn. When we're back, Laura's gonna take over again, and we're gonna have Sebastian on to to gosh darn do this thing. Let's go. Joining us now is the wonderful and talented Sebastian Wurzrainer. Um, how are hey, you Sebastian. doing, Sebastian? Hi, I'm, yeah, as Laura said, I'm Sebastian and I'm doing, I'm doing fairly well. It was a very nice introduction. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and you're welcome. Uh, great. Well, you may recognize Sebastian's voice from um, previous episodes of this podcast. And uh, some of what we talked about on those episodes are actually going to you know, get into today questions of um, masculinity and indigenous cinema. So sort of a central theme that we talk a lot about on this podcast is where meaning comes from. Uh, you know, do you always follow what the author of a text says and wants uh, you to take from it? Uh, what we call authorial intent or is the author dead uh, to use Roland Barthes term? Do we make our own meaning um, as, as audience members? So uh, yeah, and in film, we tend to automatically point to the director of a film as the author, even though it is, you know, a bunch of people working together. So yeah, that's a very brief yeah, overview. The caterer of the... would be pretty annoyed if we were just like, <laughs> yeah, that director. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of people involved. Yeah. And and then to use a yeah, like a, another example, you know, oftentimes the producer, like Kevin Feige in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, or David O. Mm -hmm. Selznick and the the stuff that he did. Another important thing to remember is that like when Roland Barthes talks about the death of the author, he's not just saying like, oh, the author is dead. He's arguing for like an active jettisoning of the author. He actually at one point says, let's kill the author, mm -hmm. right? And while that might be- Metaphorically, like, to be clear, I but mean, yeah, still. <laughs> was it that metaphorical? Post-structuralists were wild. Um, <laughs> But, you know, like, while that might be really cool and edgy for your, like, French boy scholar, mm -hmm. when you, are, when you're saying, like, all right, well, the author doesn't matter, death of the author, kill the author, I'm not going to listen to them at all, um, 
engaging indigenous cinema where so much of the the point of that is to say like hey yeah no we are still here we're still a part of this community we've come into modernity we are um like present to then say well actually in fact the author is dead mm-hmm. when you're dealing with a community that has experienced genocide that's like not great yeah. um so ha- it becomes really important to interrogate that idea of the death of the author when dealing with indigenous cinema but also Laura and I are not scholars of that of that field nope. we're not experts in any ways though so Sebastian would you like yeah. to help us out and like how do we reconcile the idea of like well we still want jobs uh, <laughs> as media studies again will we keep it's the a jobs? real toss-up up in the air but <laughs> will we get the job tight job market right now out there for media studies mm-hmm. scholars mm-hmm. but yeah. supposing we still have an amount of use how do we deal with this Absolutely. Thank you for that uh, introduction, which is just causing me to stare into the existential abyss that is the <laughs> job market. Um, no, I think I think you again brought up a lot of great points there, and um, I mean this again. This whole issue of, as you said, Bart's idea of like let's kill the author becomes problematic. I think when addressing films by any sort of uh, marginalized group, but there's that particular there's a particular emphasis in critical indigenous studies on the way in which colonialism as an ideology um, perpetuates this idea that indigenous peoples are always in the process of either, you know, having already died out or are going to die out very soon, basically. And so Mm -hmm. that particular phrasing, even of like death of the author, um, becomes kind of dicey in that context. And there's also the fact that when you look at the works of both indigenous uh, filmmakers and indigenous film theorists, there's a lot of emphasis not so much on like textual practices necessarily, like what the story of your film should be, or even you know how you shoot it in terms of like camera angles or editing, but instead on production and reception practices, like very much the nitty gritty of how you make a film collaboratively, collaboratively with the community, how you show it to a community, and this sort of the various vectors of that that process and that experience. Um, this is really particularly emphasized in the writings of uh, the Maori filmmaker, Barry Barclay, who we discussed a lot, some episode last season. I don't know. It was episode three, I remember, because it was my favorite episode. Thank hey. you. <laughs> um, but we Y'all talked great. Lot- Thanks. Thank you very much. We talked a lot about Barclay in that episode. And mm-hmm. again, this is something he focuses a lot in his writing um, is, again, like these sort of production practices and what it means when you're making a film to follow the cultural protocols of an indigenous community. And so, again, I just think that these are all, this thing we'll discuss, that these are all ways in which death of the author starts to falter in that context. Mm-hmm. And yet mm-hmm. I do still think, as we will discuss later on, that there's a place for spectators and scholars in terms of how we engage with these films, but it's potentially one that doesn't uh, fall into either the kind of death of the author camp or the mm-hmm. authorial intent camp. I think that that's a, really interesting point to make this question of how do we resolve uh, what is in our minds a really important divide between what we say and what our interpretation is and what the mm-hmm. the, the author says is important which we like as a brand don't don't want to care about so um, for <laughs> so sort of guider discussion today we're going to be looking at this at a, a Maori film once we're warriors uh, directed by 
uh, Lee Tamahori uh, from 1994, I believe. Um, and it was a, a film that had a really big internet, it was a big international hit. Uh, and there was actually quite a bit of controversy around the way that it was received around the world. And so we're gonna get into that a bit. Um, Sebastian, if you wanna sort of get into the movie and its release. Yeah, I, yeah, I'll just do a quick summary. As um, I actually had to like write little notes for myself because as Kim and Laura dis discovered when we did the prep for this, I can talk for hours about this. <laughs> that's not, not a bad thing. Not a bad yes, thing at all. But not necessarily nice for the editors of this particular podcast. So anyways, <laughs> as as Laura said, uh, Once for Warriors is a, it's a 1994 film from Atiyoro in New Zealand, um, directed by Lita Mahori, written by Maria Brown, and it stars Rena Owen and Temuera Morrison. And crucially, it's not just the fourth film in New Zealand uh, directed by a Maori filmmaker, but also the vast majority of the cast and crew were Maori as well. And it tells the story of the Hekes, who are a working class Maori family uh, living in an unspecified New Zealand city. The main characters consist of the mother, Beth, the father, Jake, and the three oldest children, Nig, Boogie, and Grace. And a major focus of the film is domestic abuse because um, Jake spends quite a lot of time beating members of his families, especially Beth. Uh, yet kind of in the midst of all this, uh, the children, the older children at least, still find ways to reconnect with their Maori heritage. So Nig joins a Maori street gang. Uh, Boogie is sent to a reform school where he's taught the haka, and Grace writes stories that draw on Maori oral traditions. So that's kind of the setup for what the film is about, um, sort mm -hmm. of Once We're Warriors in a nutshell, I guess. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting, like the opening shot of Once We're Warriors speaks really directly to the question that we were bringing up of death of the author and the sort of relegation of indigenous people and culture to an idealized past mm -hmm. because it opens with this like gorgeous shot of New Zealand, which I, I totally fell into immediately. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. was like, oh yeah, that's New Zealand, right? Yeah. Uh, Lord of the Rings, gorgeous, mm -hmm. like rolling Beautiful hills, mountains. even, yeah. yeah. Even Hunt for the Wilder People is the most yeah. recent movie I watched. And I was like, it's like that one. Yeah. Um, and then it pans out from that shot of this gorgeous mountain to re reveal that it's a billboard off of a highway mm -hmm. in yeah. this very industrialized urban space um and the main characters live in an apartment like literally right off the highway mm -hmm. um so that juxtaposition and sort of I love that the filmmaker sets you up to be like oh this is what I expect and he's like no yeah slap that down it's yeah. great. Like even in the soundtrack, um, it like does a similar thing where like as this as the shot is playing, it's like again this kind of bucolic landscape. There's the there's like there's a wind flute and like the the traditional bull roar that you hear in the background, and mm -hmm. then as the camera pans, like and as the moment you realize it's a billboard, you start to hear uh, Tom Renata playing like the the main theme of the film on electric the nineties guitar. guitar. Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. And it's like, it's yeah. Such a, like, <laughs> Like both visually and on the soundtrack, there's such a, a kind of a sharp divide there. And mm -hmm, I, mm -hmm. I actually, I, I think when we kind of discuss some of the controversy and some of the issue about the sort of context that the film does or does not provide for what it shows, I think that shot can kind of come up again because it's a really good, I think, microcosm of the way in which the film communicates with its spectators and which spectators it's communicating to. But mm -hmm. it's, it's also just a great shot. It is. It's a really strong opening shot. So why don't you like, get into that the uh the release and kind of what what happened basically yeah absolutely so once for warriors was not expected by anyone to be a hit of any kind everyone who made it thought it was going to bomb hard um and like if you look into the production of the film the only reason anyone made it was because they they thought it was an important story to tell and they pretty much all had personal connections to the material 
And so everyone was like, okay, we're going to make this film. It's going to bomb. And then we're going to move on and we'll do other things with our careers. And then somehow the film became the highest grossing film in New Zealand of all time. And I think adjusted for inflation, it still is. But if you want like a signifier for like how significant this film was, it beat Jurassic Park at the box office that year. So, oh, hell yeah. Hell yeah. Oh, that makes me so happy. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> no offense, love Jurassic Park. Thanks, Steven, but <laughs> fuck off. Well, it's just, I feel like it's so telling because I, I don't know, but I suspect like in, in that year, Jurassic Park must have been the biggest film in America. So, it's just very indicative of like how big of a hit Once for Warriors was. And as a result, mm-hmm. it was certainly one of, I mean, I, as I said, it was like the fourth New Zealand film by a Maori filmmaker and certainly the first one that I think got any sort of like substantial international release other than like film, film festival touring and stuff like that. Um, Wait, Sebastian, are you saying first or fourth? Fourth, sorry, fourth. Okay, okay. Did I, did I just say first? No, I had no idea. I just assumed because usually when people are like, oh, it was the F number, I was like, ah, number one. Okay, cool, thank you. <laughs> no, it was, sorry, it was, it was the fourth one, but probably... Well, actually, I, I, I can guarantee it was the first one to really have any sort of mm-hmm. international traction. Um, and, but that's also kind of speaks to a bit of the problem, which was that the, there's this really unexpected success and then an immediate sort of controversy that in a lot of ways persists to this day around the film. Um, and there are, like asking the question why Once Your Warriors is controversial is a, like a huge topic. There are like yeah. 20 plus years of discourse on this. So for the sake of this podcast, we're going to have to like definitely narrow it down a little bit but the core of it is the fact that as you can probably surmise from like the summary of the film its depiction of urban Maori life is not super glamorous like it's Mm -hmm. a very very heavy film um yeah massive content warning if you choose to watch it by Mm -hmm. the way um which is it's really great but content warning for yeah domestic violence sexual violence alcoholism alcoholism (laughs) yeah Still highly recommend. Still highly recommend. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) It was really good. Absolutely. I I, I watched this last night. I think her reaction sums it up, which is like, that was really hard to watch, but I'm also so glad I watched it. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a a good encapsulation of of where where people kind of come from when watching it. But again, it's a very unglamorous depiction. And a lot of the controversy kind of stemmed from the fact that uh, non-Maori spectators and like particularly white spectators, settlers in both New Zealand and also in countries outside of New Zealand would sort of just watch the film and engage with it very uncritically in terms of its depiction of the characters and their lives. Um, and that, again, this sort of, as we'll get into, speaks to this discussion about like death of the author versus authorial intent and how you engage with these things because part of why people engage with the film in the way they did is that it foreground it does okay it addresses and implicates to some extent settler colonialism and institutionalized racism Mm -hmm. in the conditions uh that the characters are living in but it doesn't foreground that necessarily and I actually think that opening shot is a really great example of this because like the opening shot is very much you know it's the colonial gaze of like what New Zealand is it's very much it's a very kind of terra nullia shot of like this is this vast, empty, beautiful landscape. No one lives here. It is ready for us to settle and to extract resources from. And then this, you know, again, the film is completely kind of shifting away from that and then showing the after effect of like what that gaze has caused in a way um, mm-hmm. and the way it's affected the lives of the characters. But that kind of speaks to how the film operates throughout, which is that like it sent, it shows that gaze to begin with, then decenters it, 
And it's always kind of there off screen in some sense or kind of implied as a context, but not super extensively discussed necessarily. Um, and this, again, is something we, we might discuss a little bit in terms of like Barclay's notion of talking in and how it relates to film. But that's a big part of why it was controversial is that because the film doesn't foreground that discussion um, as much, white spectators could just watch it and go, oh, we have zero culpability in any of the circumstances that the film is depicting whatsoever. Um, and this is just, you know, this is just how Maori people live. This is just how it's, how it is, how it was meant to be, and reinforces the idea of, you know, indigenous people as, you know, quote unquote, savage or whatever. And that's particularly speaks to the portrayal of masculinity. Um, mm. As I said, the character of Jake is, you know, a, a, is fundamentally a, a very violent domestic abuser throughout a lot of the film. Mm-hmm. So again, that's sort of a, a summary of at least one angle of the controversy uh, in terms of the film's release and reception. I know that when I was watching it, uh, there was definitely parts of the uh, of the film and the dialogue where I was like, you know, they would use certain words and I'd be like, wait, what? Uh, mm-hmm. And they just kind of go quickly past it. Um, and it's sort of a as a as an outsider watching it, you kind of have to sit with that and be like, I guess they're not going to explain it. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, and it's um, I mean, I think that we expect often that th- these movies like this are gonna be sort of didactic and tell us mm-hmm. what, we, uh, what we're supposed to know, what we're supposed to take away from this. Yeah, I think also on the level, like you're pointing out one level of viewing from an outside position and being like, okay, I don't get all of this linguistically maybe, or like culturally, or they reference historical things. And it's like, okay, I don't understand that. And then there's this other aspect of watching from the outside that I think hopefully, luckily we um, did not engage in as much, Mm. um, which is that sort of assumption of the, like this representation of, Maori masculinity being essentially the only one I've seen is what it's like right and so there's it's really easy I think especially especially for American audiences and I don't even mean white Americans I mean like Mm -hmm. when you are raised in that sort of American context you have an ability to understand and claim everything it's a very colonialist Mm -hmm. mind like colonial imperialist mindset where we're just like oh yeah well I I really like like it's the classic thing with like weebs or whatever. Like I really like this culture or I really like this show or this movie. I'm just going to watch a lot of stuff about it. And then I'm just going to like take it. It's just, mm-hmm. oh, that's fine. And never really getting past the the surface level presentation to in- interrogate it. Mm-hmm. And I think what's key in both of those instances is being able to recognize like, mm-hmm. oh, I didn't get that instead of just being like they said something but I think they just probably mumbled and I, I bet mm-hmm. that word is an English word that I'm familiar with and it's like yeah. no it's it that means something different yeah. and in a similar way like oh this is a representation of a certain expression of indigenous masculinity that is deeply impacted by a colonial history mm-hmm. like how do we address that um Sebastian you're making a face did I say something awful no, I feel no, like I, I might have said something awful. No, no, I just, it like, it got me thinking and it was, yeah. again, this is just what happens when I talk about this film, but it's, I think it's a great point in like those two aspects of like on the one hand, like watching it and just not understanding certain things. And because like, as Laura says, they're just like some words that are in the te reo, the Maori language. And there are, again, just like cultural concepts that the film doesn't, doesn't stop and like handhold the, the audience through. But then also, again, this sort of, as you're talking about this sort of extractive, you know, I, I'll just take it all, and it's mine, but engage with them critically kind of thing. And I feel like mm-hmm. that, come, that sort of 
gets synthesized and comes together like in some really concrete points of the film like one of my favorite examples is to the extent that the film like foregrounds context for the way jake behaves as a character is like it he at one point he sort of alludes to the fact that he is descended from a slave tribe and mm-hmm. that this in the eyes of beth's family made him unworthy of her and right. This is, to the extent that the film provides any context for why Jake is the way he is, it's sort of implied that, like, his violence and his abuse is a way of regaining a sense of of lost control because of circumstances he couldn't control. What goes, well, is alluded to in the film, but goes kind of unspoken there, is that, as far as I understand it, within New Zealand and within Maori culture, slavery was either not a thing or was almost entirely not a thing up until the arrival of European colonizers and the introduction of muskets, which then led to the musket wars, which is a whole history, which I'm not necessarily going to get into now. So the film alludes to this, like there's a really key moment where one of the characters talks about how, you know, Europeans arrived with their muskets and they thought that the bayonets and their muskets were, you know, the fiercest hand-to-hand combat weapons until they encountered Maori taiahas. So it's like, it's clearly cognizant of that history, but it doesn't walk you through it. It kind of expects you to be familiar with the fact that there is this whole complicated context to the way in which slavery was introduced in Maori culture and the impact that colonization had on that and how that shapes Jake's experience as masculinity. Um, and, but again, like there's this sort of thing that if you don't take any time to engage with that and try to learn more about that, there's, just, there's absolutely a way in which people just watch the film and go, oh yeah, this is just further proof that Maori men are just, you know, violent like this. Which in itself is like, is it, as I think Laura has pointed out um, when we did the prep for this, is like a terrible reading of the film because the film absolutely provides alternate mm-hmm. visions of what Maori masculinity looks like. But again, there was just a very narrow way in which a lot of people read the film when it first came out because it conformed to those longstanding um, kind of stereotypes and ideologies. Yeah, yeah I'd like to dive into that a yeah. little bit, Sebastian, because that was like, I'm so happy our brains are on the same wavelength because as soon as you said that I was like no I was gonna say I was gonna talk about this right <laughs> afterward hell yeah um there's it's not like there's no good reading of mm-hmm. this film that it provides opportunities for a spectator who is like coming into the film doing the work and I think after this we can sort of pivot to that to say to ask what that work should be um but one thing that Laura and I were talking about was the way that it presents multiple different expressions of not only masculinity and indigenous masculinity, but how indigenous masculinity relates to like temporality. So like a traditionalist past Mm -hmm. and a modernist like, or a modern present and how Jake is clearly like really, really struggling with where he exists in the present and dealing with like influences of the colonial past on his present. And then you have the youngest son, son Boogie, who when he goes to this, um, also <laughs> sweet boy, love one yes, of my favorite characters. We, we love Boogie. So he <laughs> is um, taken from his family uh, in, a, in a moment that I have questions about. And maybe we can talk about this either later in the podcast or off, the, off mic. But He's, he's taken from his family and he's sent to a boys reform school. And instead of being what I anticipated, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, this like really horrible, this is an American context also, uh, sort of cultural genocide. cleansing. Yeah. Yes, essentially, thank you. Um, cultural genocide of like 
removing indigenous influence, this is a place where he gets to learn the, the Hakka and like other traditional Maori cultural elements that I don't know the words for right now, um, but like language and dance and history, his heritage. And then in the middle between these two, like you've got your sort of more essential traditionalist past and this like really toxic modernity. And then you have Nig, who's the oldest brother, who's sort of like in this interstitial identity, blending the traditional past and like the tattoos and certain elements of what I assume, <laughs> but am not very yeah. well informed about of uh, traditional elements of Maori culture and modern like biker gang shit and like blending those two aesthetically and also it seems pretty culturally like they have mm -hmm. this camaraderie that is both influenced by like modern expressions of masculinity and something that seems a little bit like more grounded in a like extended familial structure. I talked for too long about a thing that I don't know very much about so please come and correct me Sebastian. I mean, yeah, I do. I, I'm happy to talk about all of that because I, um, in the fall, like literally wrote a paper about temporality as it relates to masculinity in this film. So like you said that and like, I got all excited because- Okay, Sebastian, this... your excited face looks so close to, oh my God, shut the fuck up face. And I was just <laughs> like, oh no. I'm so sorry. That's no, I, this entire time I'm just talking about this movie is just, it's a joy for me. So I know this was very much like, yay, that was like the thing I wrote about because- Just give me a big thumbs down when it does get to the, uh, no, shut the fuck up instead of excited face. <laughs> We're not going to get there, but I, it sounds good. Um, but in terms of like the way the film relates temporality and masculinity, like I think it's a great point. Um, and one of the things I wrote about is that in critical indigenous studies, like a concept that comes a lot up a lot is that like settler colonial time tends to be highly linear, which is part mm -hmm. of where you get this whole notion of like indigenous people are in the process of going extinct. It's this idea of, you know, it was this trajectory, like from a, you know, quote unquote traditional past, and then we're going to head towards modernity. And in the process, they will go extinct and vanish or all be assimilated basically. And then there's this idea that in, you know, again, discussed in, indig in critical indigenous studies that a lot of indigenous cultures have a view of time and temporality that is very non-linear. I think um, the Pueblo author, Leslie Marvin Soko has this great quote where she's like, five minutes ago is just as present as 500 years ago. Um, and so that I think very much relates like, again, if you kind of take the time to dig into it, how the film portrays those different characters insofar as, um, you know, like the character of Jake explicitly refuses to engage with the past and kind of like imagines himself in some ways on this forward trajectory that mm -hmm. is incredibly harm harmful for him. Like he, at one point, I think straight up says like, he describes Maori people, other Maori people as quote unquote, living in the fucking past. Yes, yeah. Whereas mm -hmm. the characters of Nig and Boogie all, you know, both find these ways in which to understand that like engaging with their traditions is not some process of you know going extinct or dying out but instead mm -hmm. a form of cultural re revitalization um and i think the point about like nig in particular is really interesting because in the book that this is based on which we're not going to go into because that is a whole other hot mess but like the author alan duff <laughs> just hates the gangs like just absolutely despises them and like has like nig dies in a gang war in the book and like it's just it's a very like unflattering portrayal of them wow. whereas like what's really interesting is that in the film um 
clearly like Lee Temahori and the screenwriter Rhea Brown, who like dramatically reshaped like the, the kind of structure and ideology of the, of the story are much more sympathetic to it. And like, on the one hand, there's an acknowledgement that there are still toxic elements here. Like there's a whole scene where Nig is initiated into the gang and is beaten by his, his new brothers basically. And it's, it's portrayed in a pretty brutal way. And it's like clearly kind of acknowledging the fact that like, they're still working through some ideas of masculinity mm-hmm. that are, are can be quite toxic. But at the same time, there's a lot more sympathy in the film with the fact that like they are trying that the gang is a space in which they're trying to reconnect with their culture in some way. Mm-hmm. Like the, the name of the gang is literally Toa Etirora, which is which translates to to Brave New Zealand, roughly. Um, they part of the gang initiation is he gets a moko, which is the the traditional facial tattoo. So mm-hmm. there's a, again, there's a lot more portrayal of the way in which the the gang is a space for that sort of reconnection mm-hmm. and cultural re- revitalization, which I think is really interesting. I'm glad you said that because the way that I was thinking about it was much more informed by like either Western or also like um, different ways that African-American theorists and literary scholars conceive of temporality. So I was like, you've got your past and you have this location and then you like move to another location. And so it is very linear. So thank you for sort of reframing that for me in a way that's actually relevant to the culture that I'm talking about. I appreciate that. Yeah, I I think that that particular example is a really, it's a great example of what the film does so well. um, And as sort of outside viewers, like looking in, you know, we see this um, visual cue of the biker gang and immediately you're like, oh, bad news. Those are the bad, the bad people. And, you know, it kind of, leaves this door open for a lot of ambivalence. Um, you know, it's not, they're not fully, it's not telling you this is the good, this is the right direction to go, or nor is it saying this is the wrong direction to go, but it's, you know, it's subverting what, again, it's like with the billboard panning out to the, the highway, it's kind of subverting what you, you know, your, your kind of automatic assumptions. Um, so I think one thing that is a, a really, another really interesting, um, tension in this discussion is between, you know, this movie is, was not intended for to have a huge international release. And it, it's, you know, no part of it is interested in explaining stuff to its, uh, to viewers who don't already know. And so I think that there is a, a tension between, are you trying to educate your viewer or are you trying to, are you making a, a film for people who already know? And, you know, mm-hmm. how do we reconcile this, right? Do we, as, mm-hmm. do we just return to authorial intent? You know, what can we do? Um, and by we, mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> everybody, not just necessarily mm-hmm. the three of us, but what's kind of the the path forward for responsible viewing of a movie like this? Especially because like in the American context, I think the instinct is to, when a movie represents um, a marginalized group like this, the instinct is like, well, the director should have mm-hmm. X, Y, Z. Yes, absolutely. And that's why a, didn't they tell us what point they wanted like, us to, what we were supposed to take away from it? Kind of that thing. Exactly. But I also think that Sebastian, something that you've talked about with fourth cinema in the past and indigenous cinema more largely, can kind of help us address that. Of like, okay, well aren't you supposed to educate us with this movie? Sorry to set anyone who did have that thought up as a complete straw man, but that's not what you sound like. No, that's a, it's a great point because like I, 
it's also so super true like i'm trying to think now and like i feel like 90 percent of like think pieces i'll read these days about about movies uh particularly like by american authors it's often like this is like the context that the film didn't provide that it should have and like that is like on that is squarely based on the film and so where that again gets complicated when it comes to um fourth cinema is the notion that I want to introduce now of um, Barry Barclay's idea of the communications samurai. So in a lot of Polynesian cultures, um, but specifically we're talking here about Maori culture, the marae is a communal meeting space. Um, it is one that is also crucially, as, as Barclay describes, um, sort of dictated by a certain set of rules. So, you know, some of them are things like, for example, you don't bring your shoes inside the meeting house. And some of them are things like there are there are ways in which the, the conversation will go inside the marae that are, you know, are dictated by these cultural protocols and are going to be supervised by the elders who, uh, you know, run the marae. And he, one of the things that Barclay talks about in his writing is this idea that indigenous cinema, um, you know, could in some ways or should in some ways function as a sort of communications marae, which is this idea that it's a space that these films are a space for indigenous peoples to discuss, you know, in their own way, uh, the things that are of interest to them or the things that concern them. And this very much connects to another idea that he has that we talked a lot about in episode three of last season, which is talking in, which is this idea that indigenous films shouldn't try to explain uh, indigenous cultures to non-indigenous peoples, that instead they should be more concerned with, again, talking in, um, to the community and basically you know, being by the community and for the community and talking about the things that are of interest to the community. So FUBU, basically. What was that? So FUBU, basically. For us, by us. Y'all don't, oh, yes. don't know that? Okay, I'm talking in to any Black <laughs> listeners right now. I... Yeah, that's it. No, that's, yeah, that's very much it. And um, he makes this point of like, this isn't meant to be, ex and this is where the communication from my angle comes in. Like, it's not meant to be exclusionary insofar as um, it's not like, okay, we're just going to like shun everyone else at this point, but rather that if non-Indigenous people want to, you know, witness this conversation or be a part of it in some way, then they can act as guests on the communications right in the same way that non-Indigenous guests are expected to act, they act on an actual right, which is that, you know, you come in, you're respectful, you call the, you follow the cultural protocols, that you, you listen, you learn first and foremost, that you you do the necessary work to make sure you are acting as a good guest. And maybe at that point, you might, you know, be able to have a positive and valuable contribution in your own way within the broader conversation. So again, that I think, that's the kind of the basic idea of the communications, right? And I think relates to this discussion about like how we engage with concert warriors in the sense of like the film providing or not providing necessary forms of context. Mm -hmm. So that sounds really cool mm -hmm. and good. And I, I want to be like, yeah, as someone who would be a guest, what, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. And it, maybe that means that I would go and Google this. I mean, I am technically asking you, our white <laughs> scholar of indigenous cinema. So maybe this is like the Google equivalent in this scenario, but like what, how do we be responsible spectators? What is our obligation then? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm actually, I'm glad you brought up the fact that like, it's it's asking me and I, as a non-Indigenous person like that, I, it's one of those things like, to me, part of why this is 
something I'm focusing on my research right now and is of interest is because like on the one hand, I don't necessarily know if, I don't necessarily think it's the place of non-Indigenous scholars working in this field to be like, these are like the specific set of responsibilities that are in, you know, that are entailed with engaging with these films. And part of it is also potentially the fact that there is, there is a case by case basis element. Like we're talking about Indigenous cinema kind of more broadly here, but uh, that encompasses, you know, many, many, many different cultures. And so that process of responsible engagement might change when it comes to, you know, engaging with, for example, with a film by an Australian Aboriginal filmmaker or a First Nations filmmaker or whatever. So there's that aspect. There's also just the fact that like as an indigenous scholar, I don't necessarily think it's my place to be like, yes, these, this is like the list of like responsibilities, but part of why it gets so interesting to me as, you know, again, like a white scholar working in this field is that I think it's really important to be cognizant of the fact that there are those responsibilities, there's all those obligations. And like, that's something that you need to consider and to engage with. Um, and so I do think that a big part of it is, again, taking the requisite time to, to again, like I guess like the example from like Once We're Warriors would be researching the film and learning, for example, like what the musket wars are or, you know, what a what a Hanji is or uh, a Tanifa and like what those, how those different things are, things are informing the meaning of the film. And another part of it in terms of scholars specifically, I think involves that like, if you are going to be engaging with, with these films and doing research in this area, that that research in some way uh, is for indigenous communities or contributes positively to them. There's a whole book by um, the Maori scholar, Linda Tui Y. Smith called Decolonizing Methodologies, which we'll probably assume link to in the description of this video that talks about that. And like, that's the thing she keeps nailing home that like, if you're gonna do research in these communities, then it cannot be, if you're working for an academic institution, it cannot principally be for that institution first and foremost. Mm. Uh, it has to have value for the community with which you're engaging. And so I hope that like someone answers it while at the same time, like acknowledging that like, it's not fully my place to like have a definitive answer there necessarily. Absolutely. I think That's, that was great. Yeah, that was fantastic. Thank you, Sebastian. Um, so I think that this, I mean, Barclay and the idea of the communications variety is a really, really important and interesting kind of star in the constellation that is, you know, how do we, how can we be responsible spectators as scholars and as fans of films, you know, in in general, um, it's a right. It's not just something that applies to Maori films or Indigenous films. It applies in a lot of different fields. So I'm wondering, kind of, where we can, on a much more broad level, uh, you know, what can we, where do we go from here? To steal Kim's line from last episode. Yeah, absolutely. I, I guess my sort of brief response to this, because again, like I don't. And part of this is like, I'm still very much doing research in this area, so I don't necessarily feel I have any sort of definitive answers. Um, but one thing that I think is a helpful point of guidance is um, one of the things that you'll find is that a lot of Indigenous filmmakers talk about their filmmaking practice as an extension of their culture's oral traditions. Um, and this is including Lita Mahore. There's another thing we'll hopefully link in the description is there's a great interview with him and he talks about that specifically and why that was part of why he wanted to make the film and the kind of connection that it has to the character of Grace within the film as a sort of, she's also a sort of storyteller like him. And 
so I bring this up because um, there's this whole kind of research paradigm that has been developed by um, the Stolo scholar, Joanne Archibald, called Indigenous Storywork. And it's basically this idea that like, as researchers, whether we're Indigenous or non-Indigenous, like engaging with story work requires um, sort of understanding and following a certain set of principles. Um, so like, and she lists like seven of them, which are respect, responsibility, reciprocity, reverence, holism, interrelatedness, and synergy, which all sound, I should say, all sound like very broad concepts mm -hmm. which in her book, Indigenous Story, where she kind of breaks down like, what each of these mean in a very specific way. And like something I want to acknowledge, because I think it's, again, it's important is that like, she's very much discussing these concepts and drawing them based on her Stelo cultural background. Um, but something she kind of encourages in her book is like this idea that they can be adapted to other contexts and that like other scholars should adapt them to their other cultural contexts and their cultural needs. And so I say this because like, I don't think it's appropriate or respectful necessarily to be like, okay, these are like these seven principles that she's outlining should just like kind of copy and paste to like white people this love works for all marginalized exactly. groups yeah. exactly. <laughs> like let's copy and paste that from like this context to like any you know area in which we're engaging in cinema seven ways to be anti-racist at yeah. the box office <laughs> oh no i'm sorry i think i killed sebastian <laughs> are you still are you okay no, I think the problem is i can see like huffpo or buzzfeed doing that list exactly yeah yep. so um but anyway, so again, like I don't think it's that sort of like copy and paste method is appropriate, but I do as some sense of like what the process of going forward looks like. I think that the work that she's doing in that book and the the methodology of outlining these principles is a helpful starting point for thinking about like what film scholars specifically and film spectators more generally need to start considering. Media Literate is still a collaborative podcast produced by Colton Elsie, Sebastian Wurzreiner, Laura Broman, Kim Henry, and Julia Rose Camus. This episode was edited by Charlotte Skurlock. Our theme music is Soft Feeling by Chiel, and our logo was created by Julia.